Hello, and welcome to the Marketing Times Analytics Podcast. I'm your host, Alex Safranis, and today I'm on with Danny Elowitz. Danny, would you like to introduce yourself? Sure, yeah. I'm Danny Elowitz. Uh, currently, I'm the Senior Director of Marketing Analytics for Rocket Software, which is an IT infrastructure software company. Interesting. So tell us more about what IT infrastructure means and how you provide value. So our products are rather complex. I think if you're in the mainframe space, you definitely know Rocket Software as a household name. But if you're outside of that space, it's probably something that you'd confuse with uh, for Rocket Mortgage. Um, But really what we do is we're the software that sits on top of uh, physical you know, um, computing infrastructure and allows for users to connect with large amounts of data that aren't held in the cloud. Interesting. So um, they probably do a lot of payment processing for credit cards and banks. Exactly. So the two probably most relatable things that we provide are, um, you know, when you swipe a credit card at some point in the process between that swipe going back to the company and then back, you know, it's passing through Rocket Software. And another one would be when you go to an airline terminal and you want to get your seat changed and you go up to the uh, attendant there and they clack away on the keyboard, they're most likely using Rocket Software to enter to engage with their data stack somewhere else. Before we continue, here's a quick word from our sponsor, Adverity. Marketing is a thankless task. You go through all the trouble of setting up your campaigns, perfecting your messaging, and targeting your customers. But when it comes to revenue, who gets all the credit? That's right, sales. Well, it doesn't need to be this way. Adverity is the marketing data analytics platform that lets you easily monitor performance and link it to actual revenue in your company. What's more, the advanced analytics module will also give you predictive insights into how best to adjust your campaign spend based on the best ROI. Go to info.adverity.com mxa for a free demo. Again, that's info.adverity.com mxa for a free demo. And now, back to the podcast. So this is very much a B2B company. 100% B2B company. Um, you know, it's kind of funny because... Again, most people definitely haven't heard of us, and we're looking to change that in the near future. Um, but I believe we're, uh, you know, 47 of the of the Fortune 50, something like that, are clients of ours. So we're very much almost like a utility for these, you know, huge companies to operate. Um, like I said, in the near future, people will definitely be hearing more about us. So what is your background, Danny, and how did you get to your current role? Yeah, um, I actually majored in physics a long time ago. And uh, looking back, I think I really loved physics just because I loved logic-based puzzles and solving problems. Um, And after college, I was planning on joining the lifelong path of academia. And I was talked out of it by my brother, who was finishing his PhD in physics at the time. Um, It was a really, you know, it's a conversation I'll never forget. Um, and, you know, after that, I really had no idea what I wanted to do. I hadn't really looked into other career paths. So I waited tables for a while, which was an absolute blast. Can't recommend it enough. 
and started interviewing and I came across data analytics and there were just a ton of data analytics jobs at the time. Um, but I really didn't know much about it. And I went on a bunch of interviews and one of them, we just started talking about clickstream data and what the anal analysis of it could unlock. And I remember just feeling incredibly connected to it, to the technology, the amount of data and being really energized from that conversation. And, you know, Luckily, they hired me and I started my analytics career and I had a couple agency years and kind of a pretty traditional analytics path riding up the chain. And eight or eight, eight or so years later, I'm now the senior director of marketing analytics for Rocket. Very interesting. So you, you mentioned something. You mentioned clickstream data. Can you explain what that is? Clickstream data is basically as a user navigates in their web browser um, a lot of different pieces of data are being, being gathered by an assortment of things. It could be Facebook pixels, it could be the ISP, whatever it is, is just gathering data points on what you're interacting with, what you're clicking on, what pages you're visiting, how long you're visiting them. And you can kind of stitch together, you know, the full web sessions, what we call it, um, that a user has and what they're you know, engaging with. And that's kind of what we study to learn about um, how to be better, really. Clickstream data is really the centerpiece of it. What is an example of an insight you might gather from looking at that kind of data? Yeah, that's a great question. So I think there's lots of testing you can do um, around, you know, how to get someone to engage with something or learning about what people want to engage with. So if you're trying to promote a product, whether it's consumer goods or, you know, a B2B lead form, the path that someone naturally takes to get there, or let's say you have someone land on a page from a paid ad, they might not do what you expect them to do. And learning about all the different things that they see after coming from that ad can let you know what people actually are interested in before they're going to be ready to convert. And then you could change your customer journey. You know, you could go to your uh, creative team, drop new kinds of creative for ads, for the website itself, and try to give someone an easier experience, a more positive experience. Do you do a lot of testing in your current role? In my current role, we're going through a foundational phase. So um, there's a lot of just what tools are we gonna use? How are we setting them up? What kind of data do we want? Uh, how is it gonna be manifested? So we're kind of building out our system. 2023 is definitely gonna be a year of a lot of testing. We're launching a new website soon. Um, uh, we're rebranding, you know, there's a lot of stuff going on. So um, as we come into next year, we'll probably be doing a lot of paid media testing, web testing, testing across all engagements that we want to um, provide to customers. So uh, this is a more general question, but um, actually, no, sorry, I'm going to pick a different one. Um, so, so following the thread of, um, of, of testing, you, you have to look at data to know which, um, maybe which copy performed better, which image performed better, which pages. So what KPIs do you look at when you're assessing success in marketing and uh, what are some of the main KPIs maybe and and further how's that changed over time yeah I think that's a really good question um, 
the KPIs of a test are definitely deemed by the goal of the test, right? So if it's simply getting clicks on an ad, then you're going to look at the click-through rate of you know the the two different creatives. You want to exhibit a lot of control over that test, though. You don't want to do too much. So maybe have the same image with a different headline or the same image and headline and different CTA um, and make sure that you're going to get enough impressions to know, you know, statistically significantly that, you know, uh, CTA two was better than CTA one. So in terms of the KPIs, I mean, it really depends on what part of the funnel you're looking at. If it's top of funnel, if it's mid funnel, if it's lower funnel, there's different KPIs along the way. Um, and also just what the goal of the test is. How KPIs have changed over time, I think that's kind of, it, that's an interesting question because when I think about what KPIs I look at now, they're pretty much the same as 10 years ago, but it's really all the steps that get you to KPIs that we have now that are different. So, you know, tech and data have come so far in marketing. And for years, there's been a mantra, just reach the right person in the right place at the right time. And today, we just have a ton more control over actually achieving that goal. We have the data and tools to segment at an incredible level. We have the data and tools to personalize media, websites, phone calls, you know, whatever the engagement is at an incredible level. And I think those two pieces, segmentation and personalization, are really what's been evolving and what we're trying to achieve. But really, from a KPI standpoint, you know, what we look at is how different segments perform against KPIs, how segments perform against those same KPIs when they're personalized. But those KPIs are the same, you know, cost per click, cost per lead, um, the return on the investment, you know, all those general KPIs are the same. It's just how we're engineering the landscape for different types of people that are changing to promote those KPIs. Interesting. Do you think that will ever change? Do you think we'll ever look at different KPIs in the future? Um, definitely not going to say no. Um, marketing and marketing technology is changing at, it seems like a faster pace every year, which is crazy because it's changing very, very fast. Um, so I, I wouldn't say no. Um, and if it does change, I'd be really excited to be a part of that. And I, I want to ask a further question, but it's almost like a brainstorming question. What could be some of the changes in KPIs that we look at? One of the things that comes to mind for me is MTA and other kinds of modeling to understand customer behavior relative to the marketing and the impact that that marketing has on the customer. And I think that that technology, multi-touch attribution, basically just advanced modeling, I think it is still in an early phase because, first of all, I don't think there's one clear winner in the MTA world in terms of like vendors. Um, maybe Google has like a built-in solution. I, I don't know too much about that. Um, but I, I feel like um, MTA is still still early in in its cycle of being used in marketing and I think as it is more adopted and there's more clear winners around it um, in terms of like who's offering MTA uh, multi-touch attribution um, as a service, then not only will it be trusted more, but um, 
well, I guess that that is the outcome is that eventually it'll be trusted more um, and used as a more primary uh, KPI rather than how it's currently looked at, which is a much more almost artistic way where you have to take it with a grain of salt. It's a directional kind of analysis. It's good at a very high level. It's not necessarily super accurate at a very granular level. So uh, what do you think um, for, for that and any other ideas? Yeah, I mean, multi-touch attribution is, um, it, I'll say this, it might be the next phase of, of marketing, you know, of, it might be the next era of marketing. I say might because I personally haven't seen anything that's so convincing that we need to use it. Right. And I think I think the marketing landscape and how money is it how money is buying ads across different media channels and you know different partners and the black box nature of even those, you know, like Facebook's notorious black box. Um make it really and I know you'll get end results because you have a bottom line and you know what you spent. But ultimately, because the money coming in is ever changing, you know, like in the last, let's say, five years, OTT has grown, right? There's much more streaming platforms. People are getting off cable. And now there's more ads on your TV through Hulu and Netflix or whatever. Um, Just by how much the way you buy ads changes makes it so much harder for an MTA to become accurate. And it's hard for me to say what you know how we'll be buying ads five years from now whether it'll be on people's apple watches whether there will be some kind of media glass or vr you know like things are going to change so much just like they have changed if i'm building a model that's supposed to be based off of historical performance to forecast what i should spend in my mix and how i should engage in what order how accurate can it really be you know, is it worth me, my company investing heavy contract dollars to pay for this model that, you know, again, this is just my viewpoint, in my viewpoint, is really hard to be accurate. I don't know if that answers the question, but that's my take on MTA. And, you know, it, I, I'm, I hope I'm proven wrong and I hope that there is an incredibly accurate solution that comes up and or an incredibly accurate methodology, I'll say, not solution. Um, and that would be really exciting. And, you know, it would explode the space, The you know, it would absolutely explode the space and drastically change how many, many companies market. Um, but right now, just like you said, it is in the infancy and I'm definitely not convinced and, but I can be convinced, I guess. The, what comes to mind for me of a vision of the future is almost like a Bloomberg terminal type of interface for marketing and actually having programmatic bidding that is connected to a multi-touch attribution program and allowing the machine to make those decisions and optimizations with every single bid and learn from every single one of those interactions. If you feed the clickstream data to the machine, right? You can look at what the customer is doing on your website, see if they're purchasing or if they're interested, and bid in more, 
bid more times in the way that encourages that behavior. And I think that we're doing that manually right now, you know, and there's so many different uh, kinds of data that you can look at to optimize. But if you have full vision over the website activity and it's a primarily website driven sales process, I think that can be largely uh, built into some kind of a machine learning model. Yeah, that would be, I mean, you know, the bidding engines right now definitely have some modeling behind them, but like you said, it's really that second half, the feedback loop and having that in real time that would enable that. Um, It's, you know, just going back to how ads are being bought now and across how many devices and how many different apps on those devices, it's going to keep getting harder and harder. That doesn't mean it can't be done, but, you know, Apps are being bought, I mean, ads are being bought in apps on different devices, just like I said, on different devices. So creating the feedback loop, not just from a browser, but from, you know, the F1 app or an ESPN app or Hulu or whatever it is, and having all those be a feedback loop and being able to buy the ads at at those times and those places, um, I think having all of that would make it really productive. But if you only, you know, key in on feeding on websites, I think you're going to miss a ton and I miss a big piece of the puzzle. But I, I, you know, just getting back to um, the evolution of things. And I loved the idea of the description of a Bloomberg terminal and having kind of active trading of the space. I think that's really interesting because it lets you have more control of the real-time input. And I don't know if the feedback loop being automated is necessarily feasible from just a you know technology standpoint, but having people educated to be programmatic traders, you know, at a certain point of time of time and currently today, you know, financial trading is a career path. And, you know, the finances of advertising are astronomical. And if technology exists where you can have at a trained user's fingertips something where they can just use their, you know, the human brain to basically create that feedback loop, that actually sounds like something that would be really cool. And, um, you know, for companies like Amazon or big companies that spend tons of money, it actually seems like something that might be in the future um that would be really awesome do you know how ads are bought today do you know anything about that process um i'm certainly not an ad tech maestro uh but from what i understand um there is a bidding war uh and you input basically your constraints on the bidding um and you know products like different dsps go out there and try to buy your ads. I don't even know if I got the right tool right there, but um, that's from what I understand. Yeah. Okay. That, that makes sense. Um, and, and I love, uh, I love this idea. I'll keep chewing on it. Um, I guess to zoom out a little bit, what do you love about marketing? I don't think I've ever been asked that question specifically, but if I had to pick two things, it'd probably be people and technology. Obviously, we have exhaustively 
delved into the technology side of things. And that's, you know, one of the things that I love the most. Um, this has been such an interesting conversation so far. I've definitely learned and I, th you know, I've learned from you. And I think that's what's so incredible about marketing technology is that, you know, the it's really up to the imagination in terms of the future. And in real time, you know, having a career related to marketing technology, what that means is pretty much every month I have to learn about something new, whether it's a new tool, a new tool integration, how that integration is going to be set up, whatever it is, the technology in marketing is incredibly advanced. I, I think most people know that, you know, they're being reached and targeting is pretty advanced these days, but I don't think unless you work in it, you actually can appreciate quite how advanced it is. Um, so that would be the first thing. The second, uh, like I said, is people. Um, I, I'm not, you know, I don't know enough about other orgs and companies because I haven't really been a part of them, but as far as marketing goes, there is such a breadth of personalities because of all the different pieces that have to come together to let's just say execute a campaign you know there's analysts like myself there's developers there's creative um there's program managers you know there's all and behind all these roles is a basically a different personality and marketing has all of these different personalities coming together to accomplish projects. And I find that really interesting about it. I, you know, you really engage with a breadth of people. And you also said technology is an interest. What different areas of technology are of most interest to you? Great question. Um, I think probably I've talked a little bit about, or we talked a little bit about segmentation and personalization. Um, I think those two right now, just because they're very top of mind for what we're trying to accomplish. Um, but just being able to access, you know, the right data points to segment people correctly and then deploy those data points into, you know, an experience that's built for them. I find the enablement of those two things really interesting. Uh, making sure that they're real time, understanding what tools are communicating to what tools, um, informing data and informing data data engineering to gather certain data points, coming up with creative ways to engineer the data. You know, all of that is really fun, and it's just a big giant puzzle. And then at the end of it is just immense testing, and you know, you're putting different segments that you've engineered into different experiences and seeing which ones are doing what where and you know all the technology that enables all this to happen um, I find really interesting. So what are some of the different areas you've experienced in marketing? Um, I wish I could say more than analytics but you know I'm pretty much a straight and true analyst. I did spend a little time on the MarTech side but kind, it was kind of as a blended role with analytics and marketing technology. Um, in that role, I was mostly ideating, you know, if we needed a new tool um, to onboard to help our CX team, right? And then um, qualifying which tools would be best, which tools integrate with our current tech stack better or worse and um, going through those negotiations. So that, that was pretty interesting. Um, but it's definitely been 
um, a more technological and analytical career for me. Um, I, you know, I, ha I was a cartoonist as a child a little bit, so maybe there was a little creative in me, but never went down that route. That's interesting. So what tools do you use when performing analytics? Um, well, right now, um, our data lake is fostered by Snowflake, which is a wonderful tool, big fan. Um, and it pumps into Looker, which is where we visualize data from our data lake. Um, so in terms of the use of those tools, you know, there's a lot of solutions that could replace either, you know, there's a whole bevy of data visualization tools out there. I've used a lot of Domo in the past, Power BI, uh, but right now we're on Snowflake and Looker. Um, and uh, I think something that's been really interesting is learning about um, deployment of data flows and visualizations in different combinations of tools. Um, something that was really great about Domo uh, was that it's very open source and you can create what they call connectors to different, you know, you can basically make your own API or work with Domo to create a new API from a different, you know, set of data. So it was really easy to um, combine, you know, all your paid social data from LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter, you know, whatever it was, it was really easy just to pull them all in and create your unified data set. Um, but, you know, there's, there's tons of different uh, experiences like that. And um, I think in terms of what I like the most is probably learning about a new one and, you know, connecting the dots. Which of the tools that you've learned in your career would you say was the most valuable? Interesting. Um, honestly, when I was spending time on the MarTech side, I got into website tracking implementation with, uh, through Adobe Launch. And as an analyst, being an end user of data, you never really understand where things are coming from or, you know, what they, you know, what they really mean. Some, some pieces of data, especially um, engagement data that you deploy on your website, there's kind of a backstory to it which is how it's triggered and what it really is representing. And spending time deploying our web tracking myself was really insightful. Um, it, to it definitely changed my perspective on all marketing data. It opened my eyes to that there's a lot happening behind the scenes. And that's kind of where I first got into marketing technology at all beyond, you know, here's a tool, we use this tool, and this is how you build tables and visualizations in it, because that's really what it was up till then, being an analyst. But once I got into the data engineering side of things, it um, it was it, it like I said, it opened my eyes. And for any analyst out there, especially younger in the in your career, I would definitely recommend spending a little time on the Martech side um, if you can get your hands on web tracking, whether it's GTM, Adobe Launch, whatever it is. Uh, it's a really fun job. Um, you get involved in many different projects and it's very educational. That's very powerful. I remember learning that business context is super important when you're doing analytics because if you don't have the context of what's going on, then you don't know 
if what you're looking at is good or bad. It You can look at it relative to maybe the previous year, but you don't know generally what it means, like you said. And that's just such an important pillar in analytics to get to and to get past. And it will it will serve you very well if you learn the context of the business. Yeah, that's exactly right. And also in terms of process, you know, let's say we have a new landing page for a campaign. I think a lot of people just think we're launching a landing page and we're and we're buying some media. We'll get data. We will get data that says what what worked and what didn't. But I don't know that they really understand all the process and time that it takes to actually build out an infrastructure that will provide that data. And because I was able to spend time on that side of things, it's a huge part of my process and my influence on all of our campaign launches or any real any you know any new activation, any new piece of real estate. Um, is getting tracking involved as early as possible, talking about what the goal of what we're trying to do is, which will then inform you know, what engagements we want to track and how they'll trigger and how they'll be manifested so that we can totally understand exactly what we're assessing at the outcome. Um, and if I hadn't spent enough time on that side of things and really educated, became educated. I don't, you know, I don't know what my process would have been today, but I'm very thankful that um, just like you said, connecting the business all the way into the triggers of the engagements um, is imperative. Do you have any mentors, Danny? Um, I have a bevy of mentors and um, you know, I'm incredibly thankful for all of them the ones that I've had in the past, uh, the ones that I have today, certainly. And, you know, as I've grown in my career, I've become a mentor for others. And, you know, becoming a mentor for others has only made me appreciate all the people that have enabled me to be where I am today um, even more. Um, and, yeah, I mean, I'm really passionate about mentorship and team dynamics. Um it's something that I think about almost every day. And I have a philosophy that, um, you know, innate talent needed to, you know, I'll just strictly focus on analytics just as the example, but, you know, the innate talent needed to be a great analyst isn't really the determining factor in someone's career progression or their success. Uh, there's a ton of people out there that can perform accurate analyses with data, with data. The data speaks for itself pretty much in all situations. Um, and anyone can learn good process and be creative in what they're looking at. It's really, you know, success is fostered through your mentors, the teams you're on, you know, the, the work community you have. Having people that actually care about giving you more responsibility and people that trust you with that responsibility people that speak up for you. Um, that's really key. Uh, I think it empowers you when that happens and when you see it and when you feel it. And it, uh, you know, it's kind of a pay it forward situation. When it happens to you, you'll learn from that experience and you will most certainly try to employ it, you know, in your future to someone else. And mentorship's incredibly hard. 
you know, in the decades that make up a career, it has got to be the hardest part. The, the dynamics of mentorship are so complex. You have to learn about other people's work styles. You have to build collaboration and trust. You have to understand how to teach different types of people that have different learning styles. And you have to do that while making it enjoyable, progress-based. You know, it's just not easy. It, taking numbers, assessing them, and giving recommendations there's there's a there can be process to that but you know mentoring people um no matter how many books you read how many podcasts you listen to every time you get a new direct report it's an open book and there's no way of knowing how it's going to go so um i found that um mentorship has been incredibly powerful in my career and um yeah that's my spiel on mentorship yeah, that's that that's interesting. So, have you found any similarities in the lessons that you teach in your mentor when you're mentoring others? Do you find that there's anything that's particularly common that you teach? Um, I like to foster independence. Uh, I I think maybe that's just because analysts tend to have the data behind them, but um, I like to foster independence because at the end, you know, by fostering independence, um, you get someone who obviously needs less oversight. And as they need less oversight, they can kind of learn a little for themselves. And obviously, I'm going to be there along the way. But, um, you know, they'll be empowered to take meetings themselves, to make recommendations from, you know, let, let's say they're staffed to do paid media optimization, performance marketing analysis. Um, I want them to be empowered not to ask me every time they think something's right, because they've come to that conclusion and they can make their recommendation. Obviously, if they're very bad at it, um, that wouldn't <laughs> that wouldn't be great. But because it's data analytics, you know, as long as our data infrastructure is set up the right way and as long as they're pulling things the right way, and that's what I, you know, getting back to process, as long as all that's in line, then the recommendations they're going to be giving are going to be good. Um, and I, I, as, as fast as possible and as fast as they're comfortable, I'd like them to have, you know, an intern. I, I want them to experience that and see if it's something that they want to explore. Not everybody wants to manage other people. You know, they could have that experience and um, realize that they either don't want it right now or maybe at all. And having independence will let you understand that as opposed to having too much management, which will basically always keep you asking if things are okay or if this is the right way to do it. I don't know if that can made total sense. It did in my head. Yeah, no, it, it does make sense. It's in uh, and, and a... And I strongly agree with um, with fostering independence and also just generally not being afraid to make mistakes. I think if you're in a good environment, then you're allowed to make mistakes. And if you're in a toxic environment, you're not. And there's certain careers that lend themselves to you're able to make mistakes. And there's other careers that are like you cannot make a mistake ever. Um, like... Um, 
we we could well it, we're in marketing so we, one thing we like to say at work is like you know th- there's no emergencies in marketing like <laughs> nobody nobody's gonna die so that's a that's a really good environment for messing up because it's you know at the end of the day it's not that bad and listen when we're experimenting with millions of impressions and you know millions of dollars and it, marketing is such a test based environment that a failure is actually a positive. When you fail, you know what didn't work. And then you can change your strategy, whatever it is, to something else. Um, you know, it's a pretty common term, but fail fast. Um, there's tons of failures in marketing, tons and tons of them. Yeah, even an A-B test has a winner and a loser. So, yep, you know, exactly. you're, you have to give up a little bit in order to learn. That's a great way to put it. It's interesting. And you can apply that to personal life too. You know, you have to go out and not be afraid to make a mistake. It's okay to make a mistake. For sure. And when you spend so much time, you know, I mean, at least in America, right? We have the nine to five culture, which we all wish was actually true. And it was nine to five. Um, five days a week we're supposed to work eight hours a day i mean that is your life so if in your personal life you know if in your job you're not you're not growing as a person for your personal life as well and then back and forth kind of just like a feedback loop in itself as well then your job is really sapping a ton just a ton of your life and a ton of your time and that's no good so um I guess holistically, um, always make sure that you're in a positive environment work-wise because there definitely is a positive environment in the same job somewhere else for anybody, right? Like if your current situation isn't good, you can have the same job somewhere else where the situation is good. And people are more important than the job itself. You're spending all day working with them. You know, I, I, I work for a company that sells infrastructure software. It's not the most exciting thing. It's far from it. I worked for a company that sold life insurance. But in both those scenarios, you know, I was with great people that I simply enjoyed being around and being on Zoom with and, you know, solving problems with. Um, and we've become good friends outside of work because of, you know, how much fun we've had inside work. And that's possible for everyone. That's really cool. Um, yeah, I, I do agree. I think um, I, w- I would have a slightly different opinion, but very similar in that at work, you need to have enjoyment and fulfillment from what you're doing. Because if you don't, it will drain all of your energy and you won't ever have enough time to recharge. It's, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's like um, you, you couldn't get enough rest to make up for a job that just drains your energy and gives you nothing back. So whether that's people or even the work itself and you just love what you're producing and you're really proud of it, 
that's enough. Um, whatever it is, it, it has to give you energy um, or at least not drain your energy very quickly, such uh, as would be the case in an unfulfilling job. Yeah, couldn't agree more. Um, that, you know, the alternative just sounds like a life of stress. Uh, and, um, you know, there's, there's so much, you know, especially in TikTok or this, that there's so much people relate success to, you know, your investment portfolio, your, the breadth of your net worth. But, um, I try to relate success to like the very feeling that you have the moment you wake up because it's one of the most primal emotions that you'll have in the day. It's the immediate interaction to, you know, re-engaging with your life. And if it's a positive one, then you're doing a great job. Whatever it is that you set up for yourself, people around you, you're doing a great job. If it's not so good, then, you know, there's something that could be causing that that might be in a shorter time span that could end. Or maybe it's a persistent thing, and that is really a problem where you, you know, should maybe rethink some things. This is just a, another of Danny's philosophies. But, um, yeah, uh, success to me, just like you said, is just about fulfillment and liking what's happening around you and liking to engage with it. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's about the journey. Yeah. Yeah, and, and I would even add to that that it's okay to quit things and to say, you know, I thought I was going to like that, but I didn't. And mm-hmm. it, there's no, there's nothing wrong with that. I mean, if you do it too many times in a row, maybe <laughs> it won't look good. But, you know, as long as it's done at a reasonable quantity, then I, th- I think that's very good and healthy because nobody gets it right every time they make a career change. Definitely not. And um, honestly, I don't know exactly how many times I have quit. Um, I was a big, I've been a big hopper, uh, especially earlier in my career. Um, you know, I, I, I couldn't agree more. Um, quitting at the, in the right situation can be a very good decision. It can help your career progress, or like you said, maybe you don't like your situation and you want to get out of it. Whatever it is, it's it's not something to be shunned or afraid of as long as it's thought out and um, you know, you're not rushing into it. Uh, but quitting can be very powerful. You know, it's an empowering thing to do. Uh, it's taking control of your situation. It's acting on that control. Um, and uh, it's kind of exhibiting a lot of self-worth and confidence when you decide to make such a big decision like leaving a job, whether you have a new one already or you just know you don't want to be there anymore. You know, it's kind of that first step and um, it can be very, very useful uh, as, you know, again, as long as it's, as long as there's some good amount of thought behind it. So I want to circle back to mentorship for a second and ask, how did it specifically impact your career growth? For example, 
if you were mentored by somebody and then they were able to help you maybe get an interview and you took that job or somebody who recommended you or something like that, what, what have been the ways that mentorship has really helped you? Um, so the first, probably my first mentor was at my second job, uh, at Hill Holiday. It's an agency in Boston. Um, and he was the AD, he was an AD of analytics at the time. I was hired by Hill Holiday. Um, and my first boss was someone else. She left, got a job elsewhere, and I was, um, moved under him. His name is Chris Potts. And, um, you know, I think we just had a good natural understanding of each other. And something that really made me very loyal was I just got the sense that he wanted to give me every opportunity that he thought that I could succeed in, you know, and when you're young, you don't, you don't really know what that is. You need someone to show that to you. And that was my first job where I was able to present to people. Um, and he really gave me, you know, a lot of empowerment that I would do a good job that, you know, uh, I I'm presenting well, if he had feedback, he gave me feedback and he really fought for me. And that was, um, a really powerful experience. And he actually was poached by one of our clients and I, you know, we went our separate ways for a little while, but a year or so after we went our separate ways, he had an open role for that MarTech position that we talked about earlier. And I went to work for him again and a to you know, it was a totally new role for me role for me at the time. And, you know, I, I would have never had that opportunity if it weren't for him. And I would have never learned about MarTech if it weren't for him, which has been, you know, really great for me in my career. And the people that I met at that job uh, were really fantastic and you know, a couple of them are my current mentors and uh, <laughs> poached me for my current job, which was also a really, really big, has been a great, a great growth experience, you know, being part of a senior leadership team, really getting your eyes at that level of the company and the conversations that go on and, um, you know, what that role is like and being coached into the role and through it and becoming a contributor to senior leadership, you know, all these different things have cascaded purely because of um, really good mentors and good relationships and really great work experiences. So basically, I have literally no idea what uh, kind of job I would be in right now if it weren't for these string of mentors who have empowered me along the way, given me great opportunities and um, spoken up for me. So what was your transition like from individual contributor to manager? What skills did you have to build? Whew, what skills? Um, well, uh, you know, earlier, I, I think we talked about how hard it is to be, to be a mentor, to be a people manager. I think that I'm definitely still growing. Um, the first, my first experience in it, uh, really wasn't easy. Um, and 
it it honestly didn't go very well. Uh, it was a summer intern, um, and you know I I don't think I really had any idea what I was doing. And I kind of you know he was he was a summer intern for analytics, and basically I was just trying to teach him about analytics tools and then to perform analytics tasks, uh, which on the surface sounds like you know, a pretty run-of-the-mill internship, but there was a, a huge gap in understanding his personality, um, understanding, you know, trying to understand how he learns uh, comfortably and prioritizing, you know, things from his side to get the most out of him and give him the most enjoyment out of this role. And, you know, what I learned coming out of that was that I should really focus more on the comfort of the person that you're managing, not yourself or projecting how you learn or how you would do things. You know, there's more than one way to do literally anything, especially in analytics. There's more than one way to get data from one place to another. There's more than one way to scrub data that, you know, there's more than one way to do things and um, letting people be creative in their own problem solving and, um, you know, trying to trying to create uh, a way to teach to their learning style um, is, uh, you know, paramount. And I like to ask certain things early on now, uh, like, what are you looking for in the role? How do you envision your career? Is it in analytics? You know, are, are, you, are you passionate about this or are you trying different things right now and learning about yourself? You know, what skills do you have? What skills do you want to grow? Try to basically try to create, um, you know, more of a world of their growth and focusing on their growth rather than the job, if that makes sense. Yeah, that does. And would you ask them even how they learn if they're like an auditory or visual kind of learner? Yeah, definitely. Um, especially, you know, as we're discussing things or going through their onboarding or education, whatever it is, I like to frequently ask, like, if this is resonating, if there's a different way, you know, that what we're discussing, you know, if there's a better way it could be presented. Uh, I want to make sure that they're internalizing things the best way they can, as opposed to just, you know, like we can make however many onboarding decks we want, but how many people really key in on onboarding decks and go through slide after slide after slide and internalize it and watch videos and internalize those. I don't know, maybe some, maybe some don't, but there's no one size fits all. So, you know, there's certain topics that you have to go over and there's certain education they need to have. Um, and whether that's learning by doing, if they're impeccable note takers and they can ingest that way, like getting to the point that they're learning it the best way for them is, you know, incredibly important. Yeah. Makes a lot of sense. And if they're, if they're comfortable in their learning situation, they'll be comfortable, you know, in the, in the job itself and uh, just getting back to mentorship and um, feeling good about being at your job. You know, you don't want someone coming in and just, being totally unexcited because they know that things are going to be presented them in a way they don't want it. And are these the kind of skills you can learn from an online course or do you really have to do it to learn them? 
I think that depends on um, who you're talking to. They might have a different learning style than me, but I'm definitely a learn by doer, learn by doing things. Um, I learn through failure. Uh, you know, that's just who I am. So, you know, my per, my consistency in learning through failure is in line with how I didn't do a great job the first time I had a summer intern, you know, and I and I came away from it on, you know, trying to understand what it was that I could have done better. For me, I, I think my mentors have been really great in mentoring me on how to mentor, um, which is meta, but also very real, you know, uh, understanding how I communicate is and how it can be perceived by others. It's really important. And um, they've, they've definitely taught me a lot about that and a lot about um, fostering a good community for um, people on my team. So um, what skill would you recommend to college students to build in a career in marketing or analytics? Uh, in marketing as a whole, uh, now, you know, talked a little bit earlier about how broad marketing it is. And honestly, there's probably a job for pretty much any major at this point. An English major could be a copywriter. A physicist like me could be a director of analytics. Um, a statistician could be a modeler. You know, the list is endless. So um, my recommendation for folks in college would be, honestly, just to take advantage of your time in college, because most likely you're only going to do it once. And it's really transformative and can be a ton of fun. Um, I would just study what you find interesting and what resonates with you because you'll probably never get to, you know, be in a situation where you can just spend your time studying things that are interesting to you, again, unless they're in line with your career. Um, and, you know, it's great if you want to crush it, get good grades going to med school or law school, but it's also great if you want to socialize and graduate and just evolve in your own way. Um, as for analytics specifically, um, really anything that involves numbers. Uh, I think we look for any STEM um, major or minor uh, shows that you had interest enough to study it more than you had to. Um, and you know, you could have dropped it at any time, switched to something else, but you stuck with it. So there must be something in there that shows that you like, you know, numbers-based logic, problem solving, and, you know, it's that passion that is pretty key. So going back to your career, you were given a lot of challenges, and I've, I'm in this place right now where I've been challenged in a new role that is quite ambitious and I'm loving it. I mean, it's, it is exciting, but I want to ask you how you deal with imposter syndrome when you're given more advanced work than you really have the experience to do. Yeah, that's a tough one. Um, imposter syndrome is tough. And, uh, I recently went through a pretty serious bout, um, in my, in my new role, you know, uh, I had a previous relationship with the folks that hired me and, you know, I, I was coming from a pretty great job 
I had no intention of leaving and I really wouldn't have left if it wasn't this specific person, um, Barb Goose, who um, wanted uh, me to join the team. Uh, I had a lot of respect for her. I had worked, you know, levels under her before. She ran an incredible department at a previous job. And um, one of my <laughs> requests was that um, I be included on the leadership team because I felt that I could handle it. You know, I felt that it was time for me to make the leap. And not that it wasn't or that it was, but coming into that role and it being my first time, you know, it was really, really hard because you're around people that have had a lot of experience in leadership. They've ran multiple teams, large teams for different companies. You know, they're consummate pros and they're, you know, successful leaders and you come in and it's your first time and you're trying to find your place. Can you speak up? I don't know. You know, it can be really tough and how to get over it is really had to just trust in yourself that the folks around you hired you for this role and there's a reason they did that. And, you know, if they had the confidence in you to make you that formal offer and let you sign it, take it back, process that and start paying your paychecks, they did that for a reason and they have confidence in you and you should have confidence in yourself. And no one, as they, as they, as they go level to level, or new or or go to a new role or transition to a different thing no one in a new situation is good immediately and if you are that's fantastic you know if you, in the edge case that you are that's fantastic and you found a true calling but it it's incredibly rare for that to happen and everyone has to learn and grow in these new experiences and over time you'll you'll get better at it you know you You've been in new roles before. You've done new things in your life before. And, you know, you can, with, you know, the will of yourself and the will of those around you, learn and progress and succeed. Awesome. Well, I think that's, this is a great place to end. Thank you, Danny, for coming on. This has been great. Thanks for having me. And thanks everyone for listening. We'll talk to you soon.